0: Uh, just while I'm remembering it, we do have a new members luncheon scheduled for right after the service. So if you're at the tender of Providence and interested in exploring membership, we're going to meet in that room right there. And we have, uh, you know, a simple lunch ready for you, ham sandwiches and chips. I've never said, never said no to ham sandwich, I'll tell you that. You know, years ago I was a bit of a world traveler and I don't miss it at all. Because uh, I used to go to really sketchy places that were full of moments of... You know existential anxiety. I remember getting off of—I think my very first flight to one spot—and I was walking through the airport, kind of a rough place, rough airport. And I saw all these soldiers standing there with AK-47s. And you know, not a not a super comfortable feeling. You know, um, but it got worse because as I'm headed out the exit or toward the exit, I still got a long way to get to the exit a soldier yells at me across the way, excuse me, sir. Now, I don't know what you would do in that situation, but I think I made the right choice. I just pretended like he, I didn't hear him, like he was talking to someone else. And I did my best not to turn my head and like not walk faster or just to provoke anything and just kind of kept walking toward the exit. And he yells again, excuse me, sir. And uh, now I can hear that he is running toward me. And this is not making me want to stop at all. I just keep walking And he catches up to me and puts his hand on my shoulder, puts his hand up on my shoulder, spins me around, excuse me, sir. And I'm like, oh, gosh, what is about to happen? And he said, are you going into town? And I said, yes. He's like, could I have a ride? (laughs) And the guy's name was Solomon. And the ride into town was a pretty long ride. He just couldn't afford the fare, you know, the taxi fare, and he needed to get back home. And so we rode all over town, uh, me and Solomon. I have selfies. I don't know if I can find them because this is back with, like, the real camera, a real photo. But uh, I have selfies of me and him driving in this open-topped Land Cruiser going through the streets. And, like, I think I got to hold the gun for a while and (laughs) so on and so forth. And, you know, that's just like a very, I mean, just it's a general idea, it's just a very common thing I've experienced in my life that God does. He will let something appear so frightening that is actually, once I can't avoid it any longer, like a means of grace and of comfort. And the reason why that was actually a pretty big means of grace is I had to do this thing that you hate to do in the third world, and that is I had to go to a currency converter. And this is just a sketchy thing. You know, because wherever you are and wherever you're doing that, you know, you had to have a lot of cash back then. You know, credit cards were not widely accepted in sub-Saharan Africa at the time. And, uh, and so, you know, then everyone knows how much cash you have and so on. And so it was kind of God's gift in a way that I could have a dude with a gun who was my f- new friend as I, <laughs> as I went in and did this massive currency exchange. I was thinking about currency exchanges because I have been, for like maybe the past four weeks, anticipating this message and studying about biblical femininity and thinking about specifically just the way that Proverbs just wholeheartedly commends the getting of a wife. Um, we looked, we, we moved past a verse in Proverbs 12 without mentioning it, Proverbs 12, 4, a wife of noble character is her husband's crown but she who causes shame is like decay in his bones. And then a proverb coming up, Proverbs eighteen twenty-two. he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. And I think that one of the ways to think about this that I am seeing more and more as I live is that if you get a good wife, she is like a currency converter in that you give her your life and she gives you a legacy in return. That extends beyond your life like that's a pretty cool thing and you have to spend your life on something one way or the other right and it seems like handing your wife your life and saying hey would you turn this into a family and a legacy that's a pretty good deal that's what we're seeing today in our text it's going to just be a super encouraging simple uh, kind of book report like sermon i'm just going to tell you all the stuff I found when I studied this idea. And the text is Proverbs 14:1. The wisest of women builds her house, but folly with her own hand tears it down. The first idea that I want to kind of show you that is simply that all of the women in Proverbs are powerful. Um, there are good women in the book of Proverbs, there are bad women in the book of Proverbs, but they are all consequential women. Um, Not only are all of the women in Proverbs consequential and powerful, but they are held responsible with the same level of esteem, right? So with great power comes great responsibility. And so it's, it's true that Proverbs is just like, there are no inconsequential women in the book of Proverbs, they're all significant, they're all consequential, they're all powerful. But Proverbs is also super clear that they are held responsible. And that's of course what this verse is saying, right? It's, it's attributing the building up of a household, which is you know, a lot like the, the word legacy that I used, it's not just a home. It's attributing the building up of a household to a woman's wisdom and i'll explain that more as we proceed so the basic idea of the verse is sort of like when a household is flourishing that is being built up when we observe that a household is flourishing or being built up we should suspect that in human terms what lies behind that flourishing is a good deal of feminine wisdom this is what this verse is telling us when we find that a home is flourishing we should suspect that behind that flourishing lies a good deal of feminine wisdom. And on the other side, because the, the, the proverb has a, an upside, a downside, on the other side, when a house is languishing, when it is broken down or running on fumes, we should suspect that in human terms, what, lie might, what might lie behind that is a good deal of feminine folly. So that's what I mean. Like It's it's like, here's the good news. All of the women in Proverbs are super important. And it is unflinching in its attribution to that power, responsibility. Bad girls have power. And that power affects the home more than any place else. That's the next idea. This power manifests itself in various ways in the book of Proverbs. But it's always manifesting ultimately in the home. The bad girls have power. And that power manifests itself in either her home or someone else's home. And the good girls have power. And we're going to look at Proverbs 31. And that power manifests itself either in her home or in, well, in her home. So look back at the verse again. The wisest of women build her house, but folly with her own hand tears it down. Now, this phrase, her house, is another attribution of power and responsibility. It implies ownership, okay? And we really wanna lean into this because this is an area that does not get discussed enough when talking about biblical femininity. Actually, when talking about marriage, the home and so forth, we really really fail often in our effort to emphasize male headship, we fail often to emphasize female ownership. And I'm gonna try to counterbalance some of that today with this message. The phrase her house is not accidental. It is consistent with the way the Bible talks about women and their ownership at some level of the home. So I just thought just really quickly, say there's three kinds of houses in view here, um, and we could go kind of from, from more general to more specific. So the Bible tells us that our bodies are houses. We looked at 1 Corinthians 6 a while back. And the message of 1 Corinthians 6 is that our house, our home, is the house of the Holy Spirit. And so that passage would commend us, men and women, to take care of our bodies, not as an expression of vanity, but as an expression of reverence unto the Lord. There's a second kind of house that a woman has. Women are actually kind of houses themselves. The very first address all of us had was inside our mothers. So in addition to a woman's body being the home of the Holy Spirit, women carry another unique power that comes with a unique responsibility as they are houses for human life. And when you read this verse again, the wisest of women builds her house but with folly uh, tears it down, uh, it's not hard to think of the issue of abortion. And if you've thought, if you've ever stood outside of Planned Parenthood, you know, we have, we have some of our fellow church members who will go there specifically to create a kind of loving friction for women who have succumbed to the folly of tearing down their own house. And may those members be blessed, and may we prayerfully consider joining them, but women have... Like their houses at different levels, and one of the things that's really important that we continue to talk about and acknowledge is that women have this extremely unique role in being the first address for every single person who's ever appeared. And of course, if Proverbs, the way that Proverbs speaks, assigns responsibility or power, it it, it also assigns responsibility for that power. But the one we're gonna talk about most today is household. Women have a significant kind of ownership of their actual households. Their power, good women, bad women, manifests in homes, and they are significantly responsible for the flourishing or languishing of their homes. That's definitely the main idea of Proverbs 14.1, that women bear a significant responsibility for the flourishing or the languishing of their homes. Um, one author puts it this way, we need order and hierarchy in order to be able to live together, and it's important to note that while the Bible teaches the husband is the head of the wife and the head of the household, in a very real sense, the wife is the head of the house. This is something which should be very clear to everyone in your home. Now, that author is interacting with a text in First Timothy 5, so I'd like you to look at that with me. Okay, it'll be up on the screen. Now, 1 Timothy 5 is the section where Paul is explaining to the church how to handle widows. And, of course, in a society where women were seen often as kind of less than or chattel, um, it, it wasn't always clear what a woman was supposed to be about once her function, that everyone sort of thought was her only identity, is gone. Her husband's dead. Now what? And so the church was very good, almost too good at sweeping in and caring for these women. And so Paul is, and the reason why too good is because Paul wants them to differentiate between a, a younger widow and an older widow. And he wants the older widows to just be taken care of as much as possible, first by their own households and then by the church. But he's concerned that younger widows should not stay in singleness, but should remarry. So that's kind of the context of this. And uh, he's explaining why he thinks that. Look at verse 13 of 1 Timothy 5. Besides that, they learn to be idlers. This is a, a, a younger woman on the dole, so to speak. Okay? She's not. She's, she's receiving support from the church. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going from house to house. And not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. Um, so I would have younger widows marry now, this is important because we're really not talking about widows right now. We're going to get a word here that's going to tell us how Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, views being a wife. Okay, So he's just steering these younger widows back into marriage. Verse 14, so I would have younger widows marry and do the things that married women do. And that's what we're interested in. What are the things that younger married women do? Bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. Now the phrase in verse 14, manage their households. This is a very important phrase. Again, Paul is not giving special powers to, to young widows. He's actually just describing what Christian wives do, okay He's just pushing Christ, uh, young widows in back into wifeness, right? Behind those three words manage their household is one Greek word, and that Greek word is oikodespotes. And it's a compound word. And the first part is oikos, which means house. So now you know what your Greek yogurt is named after. And the second word is despot, despot, like ruler, right? Uh, It means Lord, ruler, and so forth. It's a high-authority word, and it's never used in any other way in all of the Bible. It's just this word that means in-chargeness. And so Paul is telling us what Christian wives do. They run their homes. Now, you can see how there's an overlap here with what we're reading in Proverbs 14.1. Proverbs 14.1 says, "...with wisdom..." A woman builds up her house, but with folly her own hands tear it down. It's giving credit where credit is due. It's assigning responsibility, ascribing power. And this word seems to be a really good word to help us sort of understand that that's actually the way it's supposed to be. A significant amount of responsibility. A significant amount of authority. And not just fake authority, not not authority in title or name only, actual authority. So um, I want us to think about three phrases, and I'm going to give you the first one that is the most common, but I want us to think about which of these phrases is the most biblical. So there's three kind of similar phrases I want you to think about. A woman's work should be in the home. A woman's work should be on the home. And a woman's work should be for the home. Which of these is most common and which of these maybe would you say is most biblical? Well, one thing we can do right away to make it more biblical is to give her possession in the appropriate way. So let's go back and let's change one thing here. A woman's work should be in her home. A woman's work should be on her home. And a woman's work should be for her home. Now, let we've got that figured, that part straightened out. Which of these three phrases is the most biblical? Let's think about that. Where, where would we turn? Because one is about location, in case you're confused why this matters. And I think that all of the conversations about biblical wifing tends to be location. Where is she working? And the other ones are more about why and for what. So which one of these is most biblical? Well, let's listen to Proverbs 31 for a minute, okay? An excellent wife who can find she is far more precious than jewels, The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ship of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff, and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow, for her household, uh, uh, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known at the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the times to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellency, excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands, and let her works praise her in the gates. So go back to those three phrases. Which one is the most biblical? They're probably all useful in some respects, but the one that's the most biblical is to say, this gal is not only working in the home. She is always working for the home. That seems to be what Proverbs 14, 1, and this idea in 1 Timothy 5 of despotes, that seems to be what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with this responsibility but responsibility always comes with actual ownership and actual authority. Now, there's another comment from uh, my friend Doug, who wrote the book that comments on this extensively. He writes, I want to say something here. Now, just so you were clear, I'm as jet fuel, you know, conservative, and you guys know this theologically, as anybody, right? So if I'm moderating something, you know, it's probably worth paying attention to. Doug, he, he makes he makes Genghis Khan look like a liberal snowflake. Like, he's, he's far to the right. He's soup, But but listen to what he says, okay? I want to say something here which could easily be misunderstood or misrepresented, but it's still necessary. A husband, as the head of his wife, is an honored and permanent guest, and he should learn to see himself as a guest. Now, that's a little complex, but maybe we could revisit that some other time. Another way of saying this is that one of a husband's central duties is that of providing his wife with a domain where she exercises the kind of authority you see throughout that famous passage in Proverbs 31. This is the part I think is interesting. One of the striking things about conservative Christians is how often they can cite that passage without paying attention to just exactly what is going on in it. That woman, whose price is above rubies, works in real estate, manages a vineyard, manufactures textiles, labors as a seamstress, works as a philanthropist, and directs all the servant girls. In short, she is the very model of oikodispotes. So she is doing all sorts of things. Location is far less significant than reason. She's working in the home, she's working outside the home, she's working for the home. She's working for her home. She has a sense of ownership with that. Now, let's just handle some, some ways that we can struggle to process this. And the first one would be to, we have to overcome some contempt that the world has built into our thinking toward the home. Uh, one 16th, 19th century a psychiatrist wrote, there is a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments, and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. So when you start talking about the home, the truth is is that we have been filled extensively with cultural categories that cause us to see the home as a less than place and as a less than um, vocation and as a less than pursuit. And so then when we start telling women to pour yourselves into that for that, we have to contend with the low esteem that they may have for the home, as if the home were a less than kind of place. Telling women that they are the despotes of their home can feel a little patronizing, like giving a kid a toy shovel and saying, here, you have your very own shovel. And the reason for that is because the home has been flooded with contempt in our mindset. We think of it as a nothing and so worthless. And you can tell someone that they're the owner and even the ruler of something till you're blue in the face, but if they don't value the thing itself, what are you getting out of that conversation? Uh, It's well known That for at least a hundred years, see cultures and societies are developed at different tiers, but the intellectuals in a culture society really do matter. And what they think matters because they teach and write and their ideas funnel down into a society. And for at least the past hundred years, the majority of intellectuals that lead the thought life in our culture have a formal intellectually intellectual hostility toward the home. It's actually a part of their worldview. Um, in the Soviet Union, there was this practice, this exercise that little kids would have to do at school. And they would have to stand up one by one and answer three questions. The first question is, who is your father? And the little boy or little girl would have to say, the Soviet Union is my father. And then they would say, who's your mother? And say... I would have to say the Communist Party is my mother. Now this is this is this is a whole this is a distillation of an entire worldview that we may be foreign to, that is absolutely the dominant worldview of the majority of intellectuals in our country for a hundred years. Displace parental authority, replace it with government authority, and so they would say, "Who's your father?" and say, "Soviet Union." Who's your mother? The Communist Party. And they say, what do you want to do? And what they meant by that was, what do you want to be when you grow up? But they were told. So they, the answer would be, I want to be a worker, or I want to be whatever. Yakov Smirnov, the famous Russian comedian who's rabidly anti-communist, he said that when he was a kid, God, he, I know he's lying about this, but it's still funny. He says when he was a kid and he had to do that, he stood up in, in school and someone said, Yakov, who is your father? And he would say, the Soviet Union is my father. And he would say, Yakov, who's your mother? He'd say, the Communist Party's uh, my mother. He'd say, Yakov, what do you want to do when you grow up? And he's like, I want to be an orphan. <laughs> well, apart from the intellectual indoctrination, the truth is, is that Consumerism pours contempt upon the home. And the truth is, I could just keep listing lots of different ways that the home keeps being negated. And for most people, when they think about their home, they think about a place where two to four people go to look at individual screens until they fall asleep and then go back into the world to do something that actually matters. And if that's what a woman thinks when you tell her that she's in charge of this, okay, so what? It doesn't matter. But here's the the actual truth. The, The biblical vision for a home is that it is a hospital, an airport, a guest house, a restaurant, a school, a counseling office, a food storage unit, so on and so forth, a machine shop. I mean, I could keep going. Here's the deal. This is the dead truth after careful consideration, no hyperbole. Other than where, the, wherever it is that the church meets for, you know, say two hours on Sunday morning, your home is the most important place you will ever be. The church is more important, but you can knock that out pretty quickly just by getting up on time. For the the most part, in a really big sense, your home is the most important place you will ever be. So let me say this another way, and I'm just trying to undo contempt here still. Ladies, husbands, wives, let's just say wives for now. Your home is not a mine, and you are not a low-skilled laborer. Your home is not an assembly line, and you are not a widget worker. Your home is a complexity of multi-leveled glories. Your home is a city, you are a city manager. Your home is a symphony, you are the conductor. Your home is a professional football team, you are the head coach. Your home is a construction project that extends over decades, and you are the general contractor, right? I don't have time to go into all the theological nuances of it right now, but suffice it to say that whatever we talk about headship, because in those examples, if you wanted to look, there's a, there's a level of authority above. But whatever we mean by hellship, if, headship, if we are reducing the significance of a woman's oikodespotes over the home, we are not helping anyone. We are not helping the home, we are not helping the husband, we are not helping the wife. Um, the same author that I've been quoting said it this way. The idea of a wife as a live-in maid or all-purpose drudge is antithetical to the scriptural pattern. The woman of the house is the mistress of her domain, and it is her domain, and she has authority that can and should be exercised over the members of that household. Okay. Now, let's talk about the role of wisdom. Our text says that the wisest of women builds her house but folly with her own hand tears it down i don't love the translation here i think the literal rendering of the first part should actually be with womanly wisdom she builds her house see i think what what you want to avoid and this is how i read it i read it wrong first that essentially this is like if you are wise, you will build your house, and if you're a fool, you will tear it down, Like as if like, the proof of your wisdom is that you've built a house. Don't think that's quite right. I think that it's really more like this. To build up your house, you need wisdom. Um, Proverbs 24, 3 through 4 says this. By wisdom, a house is built. That's what I think is going on in 14.1. By wisdom, a house is built, and by understanding, it is established. By knowledge, the rooms are filled with all pleasant riches and I think what 14.1 is just saying is is that one of the kinds of wisdom you need to build a house is womanly wisdom and I'm sure on the Hebrew on that that on 14.1 that really is it's a it's it's possessive it's a woman's wisdom okay so what does that mean well, I mean, as a husband, one of the things it means, and you, know, you guys know me, like, one of the things it means is to shut up and get out of the way sometimes, and also to help, like, hear my wife in a way that, you know, she's, she's, she's not a professional communicator. I'm barely one, but I mean, come on. Um, so, like, some of, some of those things have really mattered to me. Figuring out a way to let who my wife is manifest, uh, let her wisdom manifest in a way that maybe doesn't come out super logical, But it's there. (laughs) She's back there. But let me give you three or two specific, ladies, two specific points. And again, this is really just me doing a book report. This is just stuff that I've found in God's Word. Um, Let me give you two specific areas of womanly wisdom. The first one is womanly wisdom individuates. What does that mean? Okay, So we'll talk more about this as we proceed through Proverbs, but there are three elements of wisdom. You have to learn it, and then you have to love what you learned, and then you have to figure out how to live it out in your unique circumstances. That's, if you wanna be, if you can do all three of those things, you can say that in that particular area, you're wise. So if you wanna know if you're wise, it's a theological, doxological, and praxeological all together. Did you learn something? Do you know what you're talking about? Do you love it? And have you figured out how to implement it in your life? And, and if you don't, you don't really understand it. You don't understand it yet until it, it, you figure out how to put it in your life. And I don't know if women struggle with this more than men, but I know often women are prone to comparison and essentially that's just you just need to understand that would be on the backside of proverbs 14:1 that would be a way to tear your house down coveting and comparison is you're i can promise you you will never build anything because what is so interesting about the way that god has created the world is he made you to be you he put you in your little mom house and knitted you together and you are utterly unique, and he did not make you unique for you to be someone else. Um, a lot of times, actually, the reason why we imitate is because we don't yet quite know how to individuate, and that's, that, that's understandable. So comparison isn't just automatically forever wrong, uh, but it, it really can go bad quickly. So what does, what does individuate mean? It means I'm going to figure out how to apply this thing, this truth that I love in my unique circumstances. And one of the reasons why this topic is so, such a minefield is because women do compare. And so now there are women here who work outside the home and there are women who don't. And there's all of these, you know, all this crossfire going on. And it's like, just stop. Like, the, You won't ever build anything if you keep doing that. You have to look at your situation. And the truth is, until you can actually figure out how this applies in your situation, you don't understand it. And that's a process that, that can take time, but you'll, you can get there. But you just have to really be aware that that's the goal. Um, One of my favorite bands of all time, and it will be a stumbling block if I tell you who it is, so I won't, some of you would know. Um, They are really good at improvisation, and they have thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of live recordings coming from the 1968 to 1991. Um, And uh, like thousands of recordings. And through the use of various psychotropic aids, they, they really are improvisational masters. And they played this one song I've always liked. I've, I've always liked it at, like, kind of a B-level. Like it's a pretty good song. I heard a recording the other day. I posted this on the worship base camp, and no one said a word. You guys are just... <laughs> anyway, uh, I heard a recording the other day. So, so this band that I love gets on stage. This is, like, 1985 or something like that. And they begin to play this song I like. Well, there's a young man at the concert who's already... Been considered by everyone to be a jazz prodigy, and his name is Branford Marsalis. he he really even when he was young was considered to be world class, uh, one in a million musician. And they asked him, "Hey, do you want to play with us?" Now this is this is this is at a sizable concert, and he was not aware of any of their music. He attended the concert to go to a concert. He gets up on stage with his saxophone. And as soon as this song, which this is a complex song already because everybody else is improvising, as soon as they start playing, he he lets them play about four notes, and then for the rest of the song, he crafts his own improvisation throughout for nine minutes. And it just completely makes the song. The song is so much better with him on it. And you would never guess in a million years, if you had heard this, that he had never heard the song before. What am I getting at? To be a a jazz prodigy, it's actually math and theory. And this is not a guy who just kind of walked around with a gifting. This is a guy who loved jazz and learned it and learned loved music theory and learned it and learned it and learned it. And then on top of that knowledge, you see improvisation happening. And this is the the place where people don't keep pressing. They feel like they don't want to feel ignorant anymore or that they haven't gotten enough practical action out of what they've learned. It's like, no, you really do need to understand the rhythms before you can improvise. But you must improvise. It is actually God's plan for you to improvise. It is God's plan for you to individuate within the rules of the song. But that means you've really got to know the song. And so talking about home life over and over and over again, and I, which is what I plan to do, to be honest, like what's the aim here? The aim is is like you just need to get used to the rules of the song so that then, from within that song, you can be like, "Oh, and this is how I can play my part." So that's one thing. Like here's an example of improvisation that's really necessary right now. If you're a stay-at-home mom, Your husband's, every dollar on your husband's paycheck is worth 75 cents right now due to inflation. How are you going to make that work? You know, you can go, uh, you can go on to, well, I, I do the grocery shopping for our home, so you can buy protein, say chicken, at $6 a pound. And I've bought it at 49 cents a pound. You can buy... Hamburger at $6 a pound or, you know, two bucks a pound. Who's keeping their eye on these things? Who's making the 75 cents work? That's why all of this comes into play so much when it talks about improvisation and accommodation and adaption and overcoming and so forth. It's like you're stuck in this situation and you take ownership for it and figure out how to make your situation work unto the glory of God. All right, so that's one that I've noticed in Scripture, and the other one, probably bigger, and that is so not only does a godly woman or a wise woman individuate, but a wise woman delegates. When you start doing an extensive biblical survey of women in the Bible, you will find a lot of women have handmaidens or maids or helpers or so forth. And I think that we sleep on this thinking this is an income thing, and I don't think – I think there's a – it certainly is an income thing, I mean, to some degree, but I think it's a principle, too. You know, when women read Proverbs 31, they miss one of the main lessons they should learn. They get so intimidated by all the activities, and they fail to see that actually this is a woman who got good at delegating. And she couldn't do everything she's doing if she had an ego that made her feel like she was less than a woman, less of a woman, if she had to ask or even hire help. It's not about ego when you're running this enterprise called the home, this, this airport, this hospital, this restaurant. It's not about, it's about force multiplication. You, you, you find the areas that you can rent out or hire or trade because you're running a big deal thing, not a mine. You're running an empire, and so I would tell you that when you go through, you see all of these women, they all have handmaidens and things like that, and then when wisdom herself is personified in Proverbs 9, she has handmaidens. Wisdom herself as a lady has handmaidens, and of course Proverbs 31, but there's even a broader principle, and that's simply this idea that we see in Proverbs all the time. Wisdom asks for help, but folly tries to go it alone. Right? I mean, that's like major lesson in Proverbs. So because your home is so complex and because you really need to see yourself as the oico despotes of your home, you need to learn delegation. I would tell you this. If you wanted to just focus on one thing as, as a, a wife this year, this might be your candidate is to get good at delegation. To figure out, make it your goal to have delegated a few things in a year's time. Because what's happening there, it's not you being lazy, it's you force multiplying your capacities. And there's too much to say about that. One of the ways that we do this in our home is Angela delegates the cooking to me. It's her house, it's her family, it's her job to feed that family, but she is a slow cook. <laughs> She's a perfectly fine cook, but she just takes a long time. It takes a lot of brain power for her. And it's an easy thing for me. I'm I have I'm gifted in that area where it's easier than average. It's harder than average for her, it's easier than average. I'm not amazing or anything, but you know, it I can do it faster. And I enjoy it. And so she made a rule years ago, and this was her leadership. She said, here's the deal. Every time you cook, I will clean everything. I won't complain about anything, any mess you make. Well, that's kind of like for someone that likes to cook, like that's kind of a big deal, you know. It's the worst part about cooking. And so, But what has happened there is she did not have any kind, and I've seen young wives do this. It's just not right. I've seen you know, young wives have egos about having to, do all the things? No, 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 no. That's not what you are. You're a manager. You're not a maid. You're running an empire. I'm giving you my life, and you're giving me a legacy in return. That's a really good trade. So, whatever you need to do to make that happen, let's let's make that happen. So this, but this is individuation again. This is something for us that was just like totally scratched an itch. Like that met a particular need. Um, And so there's just this idea throughout scripture of people that manage things always wind up getting help. They look for help. They seek it. They figure out what strategically makes the most sense for them in terms of the help that they need. And I do not believe that this is only something available to people who can pay for it. You might be able to, for instance, swap. I will clean your house once a week if you do seven dinner meal prep for me. It's like, pfft, fine, take it, done. You know, whatever. Uh, this is just where humility really shows up and strategic thinking. Okay. Now I did a study on this too, and we'll wrap up here. I did a study on what, what can go wrong when you ask for like when you hire out. So let me give you three principles of real quickly of like these are this is what the Bible says about hiring out, and then by hire I don't mean necessarily pay. Okay, just getting help. There's three principles of things that seem to go wrong. The first one seems to be pretty unlikely, but I'll mention it. And I would categorize this one as low faith. And that means hiring someone to do something that God explicitly told you to do. Where am I getting that? Sarah and Hagar. Right? So there's a woman with a maid who is called to do this. And she doesn't have the faith to do it. And um, so she hires it out. If I were to, let's say there's, I don't think this is very common. I wouldn't want this to hamstring you, but I'd say if there's one area where I see this, have seen this for 27 years, it's in the area of education. But I would totally be on board, and I'll describe this later, with getting help in educating your kids, but I see a lot of women who actually just have low faith in this area. And I think pretty much that's normal when you're starting out. But that's a rare one. The second one, I think you guys have well figured out, but I'll just mention it. So low faith will be one error, low discernment, and this is just hiring people you should not have in your life. And you guys, I know you guys do this well already, but you know, for instance, like you're gonna outsource childcare, you're gonna make sure that's a person that you can trust. The idea is, in this principle in the scriptures, is you bring someone close to you who does not have your best intentions at heart, they're actually wicked, uh, they're backbiters, whatever. So, so the one mistake is to hire something out that God has told you to explicitly do. The second mistake is to hire someone and you're just not being careful with who they are. Uh, I'm totally fine. I mean, it doesn't matter what I think, but like it makes total sense to me to hire out the TV, you know, here and there to babysit, right? I, I just like, of course, like fine. But okay, what are we watching, and does it have my Goals in common? Does it, does, it, does it want what I want for my kids? Or does it want something else? Is is my TV my servant or is my TV my wicked servant? Right? Um, you might eventually decide to outsource some of your child's education. That's fine, probably even good. But again, they work for you and you need to make sure that they have your best interests at heart. And it also you also need to make sure that the system they work in has your best interests at heart and I'm afraid to say that for the most of the time in public school at this point, you really would just be really challenged in this area. Uh, homeschool cooperatives are huge means of grace uh, means of grace for this very thing. You know, I could not have taught my kids algebra, Ange could have, I could not have, neither of us did. We, we outsourced that to another parent who could do that for us. So first mistake you can make is low faith, doing something, uh, giving something away you shouldn't. Second is just picking bad people to do your stuff. But here's the one that I think probably needs to be said the most, and that is low patience. And that is wanting the ox without the mess. Proverbs 14.4 says, where there are no oxen, the manger is clean, but abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. Handing off work to others is going to be a messy transition. People will make mistakes. They will misunderstand what you've asked for. They will fail to deliver through just just average human-related problems. But remember this. In most skilled labor trades, if you, say, own a drywall company or something, if I hired, say I owned it, and I hired you, it would take me a year for you to get good enough to make me any money back. For a whole year, I'm just floating your salary as you figure this out. And I think a lot of women, you know, they feel like the stakes are too high to hand over something because what if it doesn't go perfectly? It's like, welcome to delegation and why most people don't do it. And it's a shame because this is just a process. You hand something off. It doesn't get done as well as you can but it gets done say 80% as well, and, uh, and so on and so forth. And you are force multiplying over time. So those are the three things. Womanly wisdom individuates. She figures out how does this all apply to me in my situation, in my particular life circumstances. Uh, and then she also delegates. How do I get help? How do I get help from people that are older, people that are younger, people that I pay, people that I trade with, how do I get help? That's probably enough to chew on. The really cool thing about Proverbs 31 that I just always want to tell people is, is that, you know, when people read Proverbs 31, they're saying, oh my goodness, like, what is going on here? Like, this, this is crazy. It's like, yeah, because it's the church. It's the bride fit for the king in the line of David. Like, it's a biblical theological picture of a bride fit for a king. The reason why it's comic book character level competency is partly a poetic license, but also it describes the bride of Christ, the church, as she marches into the future with her husband, Jesus Christ, ruling and subduing and filling the world with his glory. Now, that's pretty cool. And at the end, when we get to Reve- at the end of Revelation, and we see at the very end of Revelation, the spirit and the bride say, come. The bride's already there. She walked with him all the way. It's beautiful. But one of the really important things, and then we use this to introduce communion, is the idea, from a biblical perspective, is that the wayward woman at the beginning of Proverbs is the wife fit for a king at the end of Proverbs. That's pretty beautiful. Jesus doesn't go shopping for the highest level competency bride he could find. He goes for the worst. That which was not, he makes that which is. That which is foolish, he makes that which is wise. That which is weak, he makes that which is strong from ashes to beauty. And so one of the things we can do as we pivot into communion is to remember that Jesus is literally in the bride-building business. This is what he loves to do. And you'd say, he would be foolish to think that that only applies at one level or another level. No, he just loves to make brides better brides. And as we pivot into communion, we need to say, like, whatever we're about... Whatever we're trying to do, whatever wisdom we're trying to grab hold of, whatever house we're trying to to build, you know, it's it's all from grace and for grace. As Paul writes in Ephesians 2, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let me pray for us. Lord God, I pray that you bless this time as we partake of the cup and the bread. And God, that you would fill our hearts with faith to see a a Savior who saves, who redeems, who justifies, a a Savior who, who has bought for himself a wayward woman and made her into the bride fit for the king. God, let us celebrate you as we partake of this supper that celebrates your death. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.